Listen, if you're always running to the bathroom and sometimes just can't make it, we need to talk. You're not alone. I was just like you until I spoke to an expert physician about axonics therapy. It changed everything. It didn't just give me bladder control, it gave me my life back. Axonics therapy is not another drug. It's just a tiny device you barely have to think about. And it can give you real, lasting relief. You can even try it out first to make sure it works for you. Just take the first step. Get started at findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com. It's time to get your life back. Consult a bladder specialist to find out if axonics is right for you. Results and experiences may vary. Risks can result from axonics therapy that may require surgical intervention. Available by prescription only. For more information about safety and potential risks, go to findrealrelief.com. And this actually could go into the Barber Motorsports because it's sort of a racing concept. 1909, the first race occurred at the Indy Motor Speedway, right? Yeah. And uh, Lewis Switzer ripped his car around the track at a winning pace of 57.4 miles per hour. 57 and miles. people That's were crazy. sitting around the little drinking holes the next day going, he went over 50 <laughs> miles an hour? Hey, Jeff, are you with us? Yes. Hey, finally, I hit the hey, right button, I hey, think. He's got one button to hit. I'm going to celebrate. I did it right. Yeah. Jeff, how are you? Fantastic. Well, we're doing great this morning. Man, uh, did, did you did you hear that uh, that little news thing? That uh, were, were you impressed by the fifty-seven point four miles an hour that guy ripped around the Indy Sport? Uh, what year was that? Yeah, that was nineteen oh nine. Yeah, that's uh, pretty impressive for that period of time. But uh, of course, I think you could almost walk that fast these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, we got uh, we finally got Jeff Ray on the line here, yeah. who uh, runs the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, and yeah. uh, what a fabulous facility that is oh, and fantastic. i want to hear how yeah. much fun it is to work there every day and, and kind of just how 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 did you end How'd up you there, there and then what's going on out there well it's been a, a progress um this this whole program started about 33 years ago for me um mr barber was putting together a private car collection and uh, i was a mechanic and doing some uh some work on the side for hot rods and stuff like that and uh they came down and uh, were looking for a mechanic, and I got recruited to come into the program. And, uh, you know, not really knowing for sure what's going to be going on because, you know, it's a poor recruiting tool. But they came in and said, look, we got a guy that's doing a car collection. We can't tell you who he is. <laughs> and we can't we can't tell you much about it. But yeah, what he's got. to work for us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, look, guys, you know, I've uh, I've got a mortgage, car payment. I got two kids and a dog. I got to think about. And you you're know? not giving me much and, to work um, on. <laughs> not much job security lined up with a, a guy. We can't tell you who he is or where you're going to be, right. I mean, Mr. Mysterio. I in, yeah, I went in to actually look at the project, and they almost whole thing blindfold on me to take me into the building. Uh, but as it turned out, you know, I turned it down the first time, and uh, they came back and said, "Okay, well, here's what we got," and they spelled out uh, a very interesting opportunity. And, uh, you know, my fail-safe was I could always, you know, go to work at the dairy if something went south on it. <laughs> right, right, so uh, right. we, took, we took the chance and went in on it. And uh, it's been pretty amazing because the vision that George Barber has for the community and his goals are just amazing. Yeah. Um, I think he knew where he wanted this thing to go, but uh, he wasn't sharing it with us. We just needed to focus on building vintage cars. And the day that I unloaded my toolbox up there, uh, they were also unloading a 58 Chevrolet Impala that was purchased at an auction. Mm. I said, this is the standard we want everything to go to. And I 
about two weeks after being there, they decided that, well, we're going to look at some motorcycles as well because some. the farmer's very goal-oriented. Yeah. And uh, when he does something, it's going to be the best. Yeah. And, of course, the best car collections have been done. And uh, everybody, you know, is big on cars. But whenever you started focusing on motorcycles, there wasn't a lot of uh, all-inclusive motorcycle collections out there. And the gentleman who ran the shop at the time, the gentleman by the name of Dave Hooker, he was an old motorcycle enthusiast. Uh, he had worked for Mr. Barber for years and years at the dairy. And when he retired, Mr. Barber said, you're not retiring, you're going to come do this project for me. So we you know, we started focusing on motorcycles. And here I am, a car guy, that uh, they hand me a, a two-wheel vehicle. I said, well, okay. You know, it's the same <laughs> thing as the internal combustion engine, whether it's got one cylinder or 20 cylinders. Right. So you just start working with that. And uh, as part of the getting into the motorcycle arena, uh, Mr. Barber decided, uh, we're going to go vintage motorcycle racing. And this is an organization that's called the American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. And it's a bunch of guys that get together with old motorcycles, and they go to some pretty interesting racetracks. And you race for bag and rice in a block of wood. Uh, and, you know, so the old saying, how do you make a million dollars in racing? You start with $10 million. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, racing right. is, is like that. Uh, you just, you do it for passion and, uh, especially on the vintage level. Well, uh, we showed up at, uh, our first race was Daytona, uh, in the spring. And we showed up at the raceway with two, you know, bikes, freshly built vintage G50 motorcycles. Oh, wow. And there's probably 300 race entries there. And we enter two different classes. And, uh, you know, we show up on a brand new white Ford van with, uh, two, nice shiny motorcycles in the back of it put up a nice big white tent and all of us have got khaki pants on and white shirts <laughs> and you look around and everybody's working out of the trunk of a, of a subaru or something and right, uh, they right. pulled their back in in the trailer and you know they're wearing the same blue jeans they drove down there and have been working on a bike for three days right. so we were kind of a mr clean team and everybody's <laughs> kind of sticking at us and laughing at us and stuff and we were just doing our thing well, at the end of the day, we'd enter two races and we'd won both races. Oh, wow. So we, we kind of got some attention, and uh, we started networking and fellowship. And, uh, you know, like I say, when you're not racing for money, everybody's there to help everybody just to get the program going. And we got into vintage racing to help make a name for ourselves. And uh, we, we spent three or four years of that, had a really good time with it, and, and got to spread the word about the Barber Motorcycle Collection. Uh, along the way, uh the concept of museum came up, and uh, we decided that our little warehouse on the south side of Birmingham, we can open it up and call it a museum. And we're looking at the tax code, and, uh, you know, the, to be able to retain a 501c3 and keep it, you, there's certain steps you have to go through. And one of those is being open to the public. So we looked at our work schedule, and we looked at the requirements, and we decided, well, we can open on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, just open our warehouse up, call it a museum. We can get our 501c3 status, and um, nobody will bother us, because who's going to come in on a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, right? Right, right. Well, the first year we were open, we had over 10,000 visitors come through Birmingham <laughs> to see the museum. And it was like, wow, you know, people are interested in motorcycles. We're on to something. Is yeah, it? so, you know, we're kind of, we're still trying to process all this information, time moves on. And then we get a phone call, and it was Alton Gilfoyle, and he was a curator from the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And they had been reaching out to motorcycle collectors trying to get a commitment to loan motorcycles to a travel exhibit that they were putting together at the Guggenheim. Uh, it would, uh, 
be about 100 motorcycles, and it would run through New York, and then they would take the show and try to take it to other locations. And uh, they'd been getting, you know, kind of a hairy eyeball whenever they make the call, and then people just graciously turn them down because they didn't want to do, you know, do without their motorcycle for a period of time. And it was kind of funny because uh, they probably stood a better chance of getting a date with their 16-year-old daughter than they would have, you know, getting the guy's motorcycle off of them. Right, right. Um, so, um, you know, whenever they called, I just, you know, said, I spelled that name again and, you know, made the note and everything. And, uh, just got the phone number and I said, well, I'll call Mr. Barber when he comes in. Well, uh, we were sitting having lunch soon after that call. I told him the Guggenheim called and he just kind of stopped and he looked at him and he said, whatever they want. I said, okay. Yeah, there we go. So uh, we were the largest lender to the art of the exhibit in New York. Uh, we sent 22 bikes to that exhibit. There was 100 bikes. Uh, to date, history shows that's been the largest art exhibit held at the Guggenheim. Oh, wow. There was over 260,000 visitors over a three-month period of time. Huh. And the reason why I wanted to go through that story is that kind of set the tone for what we did. Uh, this show did New York. It did the Field Museum in Chicago. And then the following year, it went to Bilbao, Spain. And uh, we traveled with the show. We did set up. We did maintenance. And it was a great experience for the museum team. But we were sitting in a restaurant in Bilbao uh, after the opening of that exhibit. And um, Mr. Barber said, you know what? We can do this in Birmingham. Yeah. You know, my question was, what, have dinner? He said, no. no, no, no. <laughs> we, can, we can use this motorcycle collection that we have and really do something positive for the city of Birmingham. So we were like, okay, that sounds like a plan. Um, you know, one of the things that we learned uh, in doing our process, that um, tourism is a wonderful thing for cities. You know, Walt Disney stole the concept to Orlando years ago. You know, his, his, uh, his kind of the, his idea of putting it out there was, you know, facilities have wonderful, I mean, cities have wonderful facilities. Birmingham has the Museum of Art, we have the Civil Rights Museum, we sure. have the Queen Center, we have the Birmingham Zoo. And these are fantastic institutions within our city. But you know what? The people who attend the majority of that live here. Sleep in their own bed sleep yep. in their own beds yeah. at night. Yep. And you'd see stop and you think, well what's that got to do with it? Said, so, Well, they're great patrons to these institutions, but they don't spend any more money in the communities than they would have otherwise. So, you know, if uh, they go to McWayne Center you know, they're, they're paying their taxes, they're buying food, they're sleeping in their own bed. They do that anyway. Yeah. So what you need to look at was tourism. You need to bring people in from outside your community. You want them to experience your culture in your city, and you want them to spend money. They'll buy the $10 hamburger. They will, you know, pay the tax to land at the airport. They'll rent the car. And then whenever it's all said and done, they go home, and you don't have to educate their kids or take out their garbage. And, uh, you know, it's just a great concept because they leave that tax dollars behind. And that's funny that your community didn't have before. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, what you, what you created is absolutely beautiful. No, that's right. And listen, we're on the air with Jeff Ray, the executive director of Barber Motorsports Museum. And Jeff, I, I hate to say it, but we're, we're getting close to where we've got to get going and, and, and put the show to bed. Uh, we'd love to have you on again because yeah, it really is I fascinating. I more and, and, and more of this story. Yeah, both of us have been out there just recently for a big auction that occurred out there and uh, you know, just couldn't yeah. be more impressed with the facility. It is, it is absolutely gorgeous. And uh, I actually... Uh, I got to go with uh, Jeff. I don't know if you remember Oz Hall. 
Um, he yes, used sir. to be the tax collector. He took me by the old warehouse, I, th- I guess, before y'all really opened it up. And I don't know anything about motorcycles that I remember thinking, wow. man, this is impressive yeah. in this warehouse. And then what y'all, what, what's out there now yeah. is just mind blowing. T- um, t- truly a tourist destination. I mean, it, it is the largest motorcycle collection in the world. Is that right? That is correct. We have over 1,700 bikes on inventory. We've got about 1,000 on display on the floor. We've got about 240,000 square feet of exhibit space. Uh, you know, attached to that is a world-class racing uh, facility, yes. uh, 2.38-mile road course. We bring IndyCar to Birmingham. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've got Moto America, which is professional motorcycle racing, coming in on September the 24th and 25th. And then we've got the the Barber Vintage Festival on October 7th, 8th, and 9th. Yeah, we got to go to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, uh, yeah, there's, you know, 60,000 of your closest friends will be there. Yeah. Hey, and uh, we got to shut it down, but uh, I want to say uh, before we get out of here, too, uh, kind of reinforce what I said. Even if you're not a motorcycle person yeah. or whatever, you go will be see impressed. this facility. Yes. It is amazing, yes. and uh, you will have a great time out there. So, yeah. Jeff, we got to run, but, man, let's. Uh, if you've got time, I'll try to set it back up. I'd love to get you back on and kind of finish finish the conversation about uh, how the museum and the track got built and all yeah. that. There's just too much to fit in right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long story. A bit. All right. Yeah, man. Thanks. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I'll, uh, again, I'll be back in touch to get you on because uh, this is all interesting stuff in a yep. huge part of Birmingham. All right. All right. All right, man. Have yeah, a great yeah, weekend. Okay. See you, Jeff. Don't let this flop. The new podcast from Rolling Stone, focused on the latest TikTok trends and memes with EJ Dixon and Brittany Spanos. People on TikTok are becoming convinced that pandas are not real animals. There's a lot of trivia about pandas that just underscores how weird they are. Like, did you know they're carnivores, but they almost exclusively eat bamboo? No. They also pee upside down. (laughs) Did you know they love to pee upside down? (laughs) Don't let this flop. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.